Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome, listeners, to the 117th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where... Mark McEvely and I, Matt Jessup, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. Uh, this week, listeners, we are blessed to have Nick Whitaker, our firm's director of research and trading, a part of the podcast. Nick, welcome. Thank you. Pleased to be here. You excited? I am very much so. It's going to be a fun one. Oh, it's yeah. going to be a fun one. So, um, listeners, but before we begin, as always, Nick, would you like to discuss uh, a recap of performance? Yeah, let me uh, jump in here as we always do. So this data is from Coifin. So the S&P 500 index on the month was down 4.8%, so a a tough September for us. On the year, still up 14.7%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average on the month down 4.3%. On the year, year to date, up 10.6%. The NASDAQ on the month down 4.9%, on the year up 12.6%. The IWM ETF, that's the Russell 2000, um, or uh, ETF that tracks the Russell 2000, down 3.2% on the month and up 11.6% year to date. The Vanguard International ETF, excluding the US, is down 3.9% on the month and up 4.5% year-to-date. And switching to Treasury yields, the three-month T-bill is sitting at 0.04%. The two-year Treasury yield is sitting at 0.28%. And the 10-year Treasury yield is currently sitting at 1.49%. And all of this is as of the close on 9.30. So, you know, a tough September, but things are still positive year-to-date. So that's kind of where we are on the pricing. I'll yeah, I mean, a couple of things that kind of jump out at me, Nick, as you were going over those numbers. One, international. So we mm-hmm. were double digits for the year a couple of months ago. Now we're up 4.5% for the year. Yep. Another kind of viewpoint is we had some dramatic outperformance earlier in the year by the S&P and the Dow compared to the NASDAQ. Mm-hmm. And you're really starting to see that performance narrow. Uh, the outperformance that they both experienced above the NASDAQ has really narrowed. Yeah, big time. And that's just a couple of viewpoints, listeners, that kind of jump out at me. Um, Now let's transition, Nick, to big headlines and current events for the week. Um, I'll start off with a couple, then I'll transition to you, sir. Um, After 22 consecutive weeks, listeners, of increases in the Drury's World Container Index, the composite stopped rising last week. And we mentioned this, that crazy prices to ship containers from China uh, in recent podcast. And this is from the director of research at Hedgeye. I just throw that out there, Nick, because I think that's a respite that's very much needed because the higher shipping cost translates directly to higher prices. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. The other thing that caught my eye is Janet Yellen apparently came out with a stance on unrealized capital gains. And from what I read, she said that unrealized capital gains is income. And I, I hope I'm not taking this out of context, but that's just a little weird in my opinion. You yeah. wanna, you have any comments? That's, it's, it's a bit of an odd take, I suppose, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of headlines out of, out of Washington over the past month. So 
Yeah, we'll see. We'll see where, where all of this goes by the end of the year. Yeah, I don't think it's going to gain traction. And, and listeners, what Janet Yellen is discussing is usually one does not pay taxes until you actually sell and realize, say, the gain. Mm-hmm. So if you bought a stock for $10, XYZ stock, it goes to 12 you sell it, you have a $2 per share gain. You mm-hmm. realize it, you get your proceeds. Yeah. They're insinuating that at the end of the year, even if you still held the stock, that you'd have to realize a $2 gain. I don't see it becoming actual tax law, my two cents. Yeah, it seems it seems uh, unlikely given the history of what it has always been. I mean, right? it would be like saying to somebody, well, in my opinion, my analogy is, well, just because you attempted murder means you murdered him and you get the death sentence. Right. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty <laughs> morbid. <laughs> I'm sorry to go down that road. But, but uh, yeah. Extreme example. But I mean, it's not cash in your pocket. So, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm it just, it's, it's, yeah. You, it's not relatable. What, what headlines caught your eye this week, Nick? So one of the things I wanted to do, because there's been so many headlines in this week and the past, uh, the past two, three weeks, really, is just do a recap on what's going on in China for listeners. And I wanted to do this because it's something that, you know, I wish the news cycle did a better job of just summarizing the big picture because there's a lot of major headlines out there from Evergrande to the manufacturing, uh, the supply chain and the energy. They haven't done a good job. So I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. So I'm and hopefully this is helpful, helpful for listeners. So I'm going to kind of blow through these points and there's a lot to unpack in here. Um, so I'm going to start with Evergrande and I'm going to tell listeners ahead of time, I've picked up all of this information from Bloomberg, Financial Times and Goldman Sachs. Okay. So, okay, let's start with Evergrande. What is Evergrande? They're a massive real estate developer in mainland China. Um, but the important thing here is that they are are in a lot of different parts of the Chinese economy. You know, they have investments in anything from electric vehicles, theme parks, soccer team, food company. They have individual wealth management products. Is it kind of like a like a General Electric of kind of sounds like a GE, like they got like there's an almost all these different industries. So that's a great a great question. They're primarily going to be a real real estate divest, uh, real estate developer, right? That's the but primary part the, of their business, right? But the the big concern is that their hand is in so many cookie jars, so to speak, that they're they're very large uh, and important in the Chinese economy. Got it. So I have a couple stats here that just help put this in perspective. It's estimated to be Evergrande is estimated to be equivalent to two percent of China's GDP. Just on its own. Just on its own. So very, very large company, right? And the company's land reserves alone are large enough to house 10 million people. Just the reserves? Just the reserves. So, I mean, they have tons of residential, tons of commercial, tons of real estate development um, properties. So um, what started the issue? Why are they in the mainstream? The issue started with using massive amounts of debt to grow the company. And it's gotten to a point where they have a bit of a liquidity crunch. And a couple weeks ago, they reached out to the Chinese government and said, hey, we need help because we don't have cash to pay back our debts. And so you get a lot of, you know, uh, the mainstream media starts to, to find those links of, you know, Lehman Brothers. So you'll read that out there. And it's just because it's such a massive company that's having liquidity issues that, you know, we're now very well aware of. For some of our younger listeners, can you explain Lehman Brothers, like what happened? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that goes back to the great financial crisis, 2008. And Lehman Brothers was 
was the the massive bank that really started the tumble, right? The the U.S. government did not bail them out. Exactly. They let them fail. Exactly. And so that's where this kind of comparison comes. And it's not really a like-for-like like comparison because Lehman Brothers was in a different business than of Evergrande. Course. But that's why you get the comparison. And people are trying to draw an, an analogy. Exactly. Got it. And it, it helps provide scope. Um, but, you know, they're not... It's not apples and apples there, just for listeners. I would agree. Um, so why is it a big deal? The big deal is just similar to what we were just talking about with the Lehman Brothers. It's so big, and Evergrande's hand is, like I said earlier, in so many cookie jars that you could have a bit of a snowball effect if they were to default on their debt. And then more debt's going to, uh, you know, require, they're going to be required to pay more of their debt sooner, and it just continues to snowball and impact adversely impact their economy. And it's already putting pressure on the housing market. You know, if, if they were to default, it would put even more pressure on Chinese, on the China housing market. Which is a big part of their economy. Which is a massive part of their economy. And what would happen is they would basically have to fire sale a lot of their properties. And, you know, 2% of the GDP that I mentioned earlier, think of a large part of that as property. So think about all that supply flooding the Chinese housing market. And think about how important uh, home prices are in values to the American consumer. That translates over there. Exactly. And so that's where the concern is in the in the in the news. And that's why you're seeing it all over the major news, the news cycle. And it's um, it's just that snowball effect and and what will happen. Um, So where are we now? Evergrande has missed some coupon payments, um, and they're raising money and selling assets in order to pay debt, uh, um, in order to prevent their default. They've sold some of their state-owned um, bank shares, and they've actually reached out to state-owned inter- enterprises to purchase some of their assets. Um, and then at the same time, the China government has come out and talked to 24 different banks and asked them to support the property markets. So that's kind of where we are. We, we still don't know how this is going to play out. We don't know if it's going to be like a major bailout or anything, but, you know, just kind of a wait and see right now. But it that's, feels the beginning of a bailout for me. I know that does, they were yeah. posturing that they weren't. Mm-hmm. It feels like they are because when that came out about them having to ask state-owned enterprises to purchase some of their assets, I think that that was definitely blessed by the government. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think even more so China coming out and talking to those banks and saying, hey, we need to support the, the yeah. property markets. I mean, I think they understand that, the systematic risk to their own country. Exactly. Exactly. So we'll see what happens. You know, you're going to read plenty of things out there. And I've seen opinion articles just in the past week about how China's not going to bail them out. But, you know, it's all we don't know. Right. We'll see what happens. Yes. So that's where we are on our are on Evergrande. Um, so I want to keep moving along because I've got two more, two more China topics to cover. Please. One is on Wednesday, uh, the Chinese purchasing manufacturing index, that's PMI. That number came in at 49.6. It's an economic data point. And for listeners who aren't familiar with that, uh, it's an index and any reading above 50 signals expansion. Yep. Any reading below 50, uh, signals contraction so to see a contraction in china is very rare it is and i think more important you know that 49.6 is close to 50 right so we're we're technically in contraction at this point but what's more important is the trend here and and why i'm bringing it up is because it's been steadily going lower since about may june okay 
Um, and you know, it's, I don't, I'm not raising red alarms or anything, um, but it's just another piece of the story. It's something else that's going on in China that's being talked about. So I want to bring that up. So the big question is, okay, why? Why, why did they enter in contraction in this latest, in this latest month? Um, and the biggest answer to that question is the energy crunch, which has also been in the, in the news a it lot. It has. And another piece of it is China provinces trying to meet energy efficiency targets. Now, that's not being talked about as much, but I think there is a little bit of that going on with provinces trying to cut back and meet these targets that they've set for themselves. Um, but more importantly, in my mind, is the energy crunch, which I'm sure people have read about. So my last point on China is this, is this energy problem. So what's going on there, right? Half of China's mainland provinces are limiting electricity use. Why is that happening? Mainly because of high coal prices and just high uh, demand for energy, right? Um, these high coal prices have actually caused some power generators to shut down in the country. So, you know, the, the cost of energy and the demand of energy has gotten so out of whack that some of these factories, these big manufacturing plants and whatnot, they've had to shut down because they just, the, the cost benefit is just not there or they don't have the energy or whatnot. So some of them are shutting down. Some of them have, um, you know, scaled back their production to maybe only two, three days a week. Um, and some managers have, that have been interviewed have even turned down orders from overseas, which is a pretty big deal. Hmm. Um, but to me and, and everything that I'm reading, a lot of this gets down to just the supply and demand dynamics, um, which are a little bit out of whack right now, just way, way more demand than supply that's out there. Which know, started because of COVID. Which started because of COVID. Um, and we'll kind of get into some of these, these balances uh, um, or imbalances, I should say, in the economy a little bit later um, in the podcast as well. But, um, you know, it's just going to be interesting to, to hear how this unfolds. So that was kind of a lot on the headline on the headline side of things for listeners, but I wanted to just provide that, you know, big picture, what's going on in China. So you've got Evergrande, you've got the manufacturing sector that's struggling in large part because of an energy crunch because the supply di uh, demand dynamics are so out of whack over there. So I think that's a pretty good summary. That's a great summary, Nick. And the one thing that is concerning from my perspective is if these manufacturers are unable to produce widgets or you name the product, it's not available to be shipped worldwide to the end consumers who want it. So that's why another reason you're seeing higher prices for goods here in the U.S. And I exactly. use the term widget because it can be anything from a TV to refrigerator to a phone to you name it. Mm -hmm. And if the supply is less and the demand is there, what happens to prices? To a part for a car? Part for a car. Yep. I mean, if Mark were here right now, I know he would be talking about his shower. <laughs> the guy exactly. just moved to a new house, can't <laughs> use his shower till January because yep. of a microchip. Yep. yep. Right. So I think this is good. It helps listeners give perspective. And how you make this relatable is obviously this is affecting stock prices right now. Absolutely. And this is a reason why you've had softness here in September yes. as the market is, is trying to disseminate how long will this last? Mm -hmm. How will it affect corporate earnings? Yes. Really, and I think that's what's happening. Would you yeah, agree? Absolutely. So that's where, you know, September has been weak. We talked about the numbers in, in the beginning of the podcast, you know, down, let's call it four, four and a half percent. 
a lot of that is is to has to do with these big macroeconomic risks. All a lot of these headlines coming out of China, a lot of the headlines about the supply chain. How will this, you know, how will these bottlenecks play out? Um, is it going to be pushed further out into 2022 or when the supply chain kind of gets corrected and whatnot? And how much will that impact earnings in the short term? Yeah, and then right. I'll just throw it out there. I mean, the market lately tends to shoot first and ask questions later. Exactly. And so just remember, just because the market corrected doesn't mean the market's right on this. Absolutely. And you could see it's the possibility of a V-shaped snapback is definitely there. Yeah, and that's that's what I think is so interesting. And, and one of the things that I'll want to ask listeners to just take a deep breath on and think about as you have this a little bit of a pullback in the market and all these headlines out there, but what ha- what do we know that has changed since the last quarter's earnings? We haven't heard a lot of these CEOs come out and talk to us about this. So that's what I'm ready to hear is just, you know, directly from the sources that really know what's going on. So that'll be interesting to see with this upcoming earnings cycle. And what Nick is talking about there further is we just ended Q3. Mm-hmm. And so the earnings for the third quarter listeners will come out generally at the end of this month in about three or four weeks. Yep. And what gives me a little bit of comfort, Nick, and I would like to see your feedback here. I'm not seeing an absorbent amount of warnings. There's some out there, but not as many warnings. And that would be from, say, the C-suite of these companies coming out and saying, we're definitely going to miss earnings. We want you to know. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. not seeing a ton of that. Yep. That gives me a little bit of comfort. And yeah, it, I feel like the market is ignoring that. My two cents. I think partly the market's ignoring it because you know the performance has been relatively strong. I mean, we're still yep. up year to date, yep. you know, 12, 13%. Sure. So, you know, sell now, ask questions later. Yeah. Maybe. And also, I think it feels worse because we haven't had a 5% pullback in some time. Right. You know, we talked about this in the podcast, I guess, tongue in cheek, 5% in this lower volatility environment over the past, what, 9, 12 months feels like 10 or 12%. Yeah, it, it does. Just feels that way. Yeah. There's just a bit of angst. I think people are looking for a reason to sell. Yeah. Because the stock market has done well. And the V-shaped correction that we've we've seen since COVID, you know, has people question and oh do we need another correction and this is where if mark was here i'd joke with him where else she gonna put the money money's gonna come right back in in my opinion where else she gonna put it to get a return yeah exactly yeah for all right let's transition let's talk about uh tweets articles and research from the week nick i'm gonna let you continue buddy you you kick it off all righty so i've got a couple here um the first one is another update on housing for everyone so this is a tweet from the director of research at hedgeye and it's a tweet about housing inventories. U.S. housing inventory is at a six, uh, 2.6 months, which remains in the bottom decline of the trailing 20 years. That's so, very low inventory, Nick. It is very low. So what does this mean for listeners? It means the housing market is still tight. Um, you know, that there's not a ton of supply in the market, and it's actually record lows, particularly relative to... Uh, to the balance, they have a, a balanced line here in this chart. If you if you guys want to look at it um, at home, um, you can really see how how low it is. So um, that's the first one I have. Do you have any thoughts on that one? My initial thoughts is, you know, we've had listeners a little bit of an uptick in mortgage rates over the past month, and despite that, because in my opinion of tight supply, it's continuing to support these higher prices. Yeah, my two cents. 
And um, listeners, you can always uh, obtain our uh, show notes by visiting our social media sites. And um, the best link I always like to say is if you go to our, uh, our homepage, uh, jessupwealthmanagement.com, you uh, pan to the bottom, you're going to see the links for our Facebook, um, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Instagram, all of our links will be there at the bottom and you can access these show notes and you can see this exact chart that Mr. Whitaker was referencing. What else you got, Nick? All right. The other one I have is, a, is an update on CapEx, and it's more economic data. I love economic data. So. Well, you know, again, it, it builds a picture. <laughs> it does. Right? It, it builds does. a picture. So this is a tweet that comes from the executive director at Employ America, and it's a chart showing the manufacturer's new orders on non-defense capital goods, excluding aircrafts. So I want to just explain this data a little bit so that people understand really, really what it is. Um, so the data measures the cost of orders received by manufacturers for capital goods. So that means goods planned for the for the last or for the for the put goods planned to last three years or more. Right. Yep. This so is on, microwaves, dishwashers, refrigerators, stuff e like that. Exactly. Another uh, word that you'll you'll see in, in economic data is durable goods. So this is a part of that big durable goods release. Right. Yep. But it's the manufacturing new orders for non-defense capital goods, excluding aircrafts. Right? I like this because this is the stuff that's more expensive. You exactly. Know, you're not just going down to the Dollar Tree and buying this. Exactly. And so it has a chart here, and I'm going to kind of talk to you about the chart. Um, and the reason I like this chart is because it shows 20 years, so you can really see the trend. Yes. And you can see the impact of COVID in this chart, where you can see um, the numbers for new orders fall down to you know $60 billion monthly, $60 billion of new orders monthly in COVID. And now we're up to 77 billion. And you can really kind of see that V and even more than just the V we've not, not only have we recovered from where we were, we're well above it. We've surpassed it. We've, we've surpassed it. Um, so why does this matter? Um, this is the kind of, and, and this ties very much into what we were talking about earlier on the supply chain and things going on with manufacturing in China. The reason this matters is because it is some, it gives us insight into the supply chain. Um, you know, it helps us understand what's going to happen with earnings uh, in these industrial companies, you know, machinery, uh, tech, technology, manufacturing, transportation. Um, so to simplify it, you know, a higher durable goods number indicates the economy is on the upswing, right? Now, when that happens, that's a good sign for corporate earnings, right? When you have more and more of these order, orders, that means... You know, more, there's more demand uh, and companies are feeling competent enough to order, right? I mean, absolutely. And it all translates into earnings. And it also, in my opinion, talks about the high demand from the end user. Mm -hmm. And I've been saying on this podcast for many, many months now that the underlying quality of the American consumer is the strongest I've seen it in some time. And when I say quality, Nick, I'm talking about the personal balance sheet. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about their wages. I'm talking about the ability to spend. And the reason that's important for listeners is if you can be finding companies that are producing a product or service that is in demand and the accessibility to it, that company should be executing right now. Yep. Right? 
Yeah, I'm loving that you're saying this because it leads you right into my next tweet. Okay, I'm sorry. Next tweet. I, I, no, this I is didn't perfect. mean to steal your thunder. I'm no, so this sorry. is perfect. It okay. works perfectly. So my next tweet is a bit of a continuation on the supply chain issues. Okay. Uh, so it, it comes from Gregor Sam, uh, Samsa, who's an independent economist and trader. Okay. And his comment says, the bulk of the problems in the global supply chain are caused by excess demand. Boom. Boom. Right. So this chart shows uh it shows retail sales and so he he's talking about exactly what you're talking about a strong consumer and i like i really like this chart again it gives historical context you know it shows the past the past 20 years or excuse me the past 10 years and i know the supply chain has been a hot topic so that's why i've been that's why i have this in in my notes so much love it keep going um so it shows it shows the u.s retail sales are up and you can see the, the big drop in COVID, and you can see it surge, you know, all the way to, to 600,000 here in this, in this chart. And, you know, what I like about this chart is, and, and I urge, urge listeners to check it out, is it shows a trend line. So it shows retail sales over the past 10 years, and it, and it paints this trend line of where would we be if COVID didn't happen, Yes. right? And you, you can see the the massive shock to retail sales in COVID, and you can see how far past we have shot above that trend line. I mean, massively higher. Um, and so, you know, I think that just is a perfect point uh, to to elaborate on what you were just saying. Is you know, when you have these the, these retail numbers and these strong consumers out there, along with the the supply and demand dynamics of the energy markets, I mean, it all kind of makes sense why we have a supply chain issue, right? Yes. And so you 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 look at this chart and it's kind of like, oh, of course we're going to have some issues. I mean, there's massive fluctuations in in the economies and there's no way to plan and 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 and, and be ready for for volatility of your orders like at that level. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Um so yeah, that's the last one I have for you. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. So here's my other thought I want to throw out there for listeners. It's in regards, again, to the status of the American consumer. And I can't emphasize this enough, Nick. With two-thirds of our economy, consumer spending led, that's a vital part of our economy. And when I look out, I foresee the, let's just say, the quality or the spending capability of the American consumer in my opinion, is not going anywhere anytime soon. With that being said, where you follow the tea leaves as an investor is you got to find those companies that have better supply chains than others that can source the products mm -hmm. and that are selling the product and or have providing a service that are in demand. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, I think those stocks should perform better than others if they meet those kind of qualifications. And you know, ultimately, again, two-thirds of our economy, consumer spending led, the balance sheet and the quality of the American consumer is strong, wages are going up. That is not bearish. Exactly. And I think with what you're seeing going on with seeing the reports of 50-plus um, container ships off the port of L.A. that need to get offloaded, this stuff will work its way through the system. Is yeah. it going to take multiple quarters? Probably so. Absolutely, yeah. But ultimately, the tailwind of the strength of the American consumer is huge, and I think not given enough credit. 
as a positive when you look over the next three, four, five, six quarters. Right, which is those three, four, five, six quarters is exactly what the the news and the market is stressing about. Yeah, and I think that the market right now is just so short-term focused. I mean, the market, again, I use the term, shoot first, ask questions later. I should rather say sell first and and ask questions later. You know, ultimately, uh, I think that this is what gives longer-term investors the edge. My opinion. Absolutely, I agree with you. So I got a couple I'd like to share with listeners. The first is um, I found a chart uh, from David Schwell um, and this is profitability levels of the S&P 500 index versus 2019. And he is the CIO of Family Management Corp. And the average investor is always shocked to hear just how much more profitable the S&P 500 is today, just verse 2019. So let me repeat that, Nick. Okay. Where earnings are today for the S&P 500 index to two years ago. I'm not talking stock price movement. I'm talking hard cash, okay? Mm-hmm. 36% higher. S&P 500 companies are 36% making that much more money in the last two years. Significant. Even Louie, Louie's excited about this data yeah, point. Louis, Our office dog is pumped about the data point. <laughs> That's just tremendous. And so when people then you know sit there and say, well, you know, these stock prices aren't supported by earnings. I don't know about that. Yeah, no, there's it's, a, it's one data point that's I think pretty shocking. I, I th- that's a massive, a massive, massive gain in two years yeah. for the average stock in the S and P 500. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty I mean, crazy. You compare that with all the inflation talk, and I mean, what, we're talking four percent. You know, at, at different points in the year. Lou <laughs> don't <laughs> versus the versus the thirty six. You know, it's okay. Well, listeners, uh, my, my office dog, Louie, is, uh, is, is causing a little bit of uh, uh, shenanigans here in the office. We apologize. For those watching on video, you can probably clearly see this. Um, <laughs> but I digress. Every, everyone loves Louie. So I got one more. Government shutdown talk, Nick. I know it, uh, it's appearing to be averted until December now. The classic political kick the can another two months. So we talk about this at Thanksgiving. And you and I both know they targeted December, early December. So this would be the topic around the Thanksgiving table, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I want to provide some additional data to help potentially alleviate any anxiety that listeners might have in regards to the stock market. That's why I selected this. I think this is great, yeah. So this is a tweet by Carl Cantania. He is a a journalist for CNBC. He's on uh, on TV usually in the mornings. He had a tweet that showed a chart from Goldman Sachs uh, Investment Research that goes back to uh, the last 14 shutdowns since 1980. And the median return of the S&P 500 uh, was down... 10 basis points on the dates of the budget authority expiration and up 10 basis points during the shutdown periods and up 30 basis points on dates of resolution. You know what that says to me? Big nothing burger for the market, <laughs> right? You yep. mean, so I just want to throw that out there for listeners that I know Mark and I have made that kind of comment before. I got raw data behind it. I'm not yeah. just picking it out of thin air. Yeah, it's, it's always a lot of talk. You know, I had conversations with 
with uh, with friends in the industry about this, you know, last week, and we both said the same thing where we're talking about it, and you know, it's just a lot of talk. And a lot of talk. It's something for for journalists and for uh, for for the news to write about and and latch onto, but ends up being doesn't a really lot affect of the stock market. It doesn't when you look at history, right? Because they normally find a way to kick the can down the road and. We, we all move on. That's to right. Topic. That's right. <laughs> right. So listeners, you're going to hear about the shutdown talk again eh, right around Thanksgiving. Yep. So um, the last piece I have has to do with market sentiment. OK, um, now there is um, a survey uh, by the American. I want to get this right. The American Association of Individual Investors. I always call it AAII. <laughs> So the uh, American Association of Individual Investors does a weekly survey on sentiment. And you could only answer three ways. Um, Nick, I almost said Mark, because I'm used to the podcast <laughs> with Mark. It's either you're bullish, neutral, or you're bearish. There's only three options you can have. Okay. Now, this survey going back uh, recently, this is the eighth time in 10 weeks that pessimism is above average. Pessimism in general, Nick, remains mm -hmm. near the top of its historical range. Now, I like this data point. Why? I like low levels of bullishness. I think it's another data point that helps reset things in the market and yep. can help provide that next leg higher. I say this because usually low levels of bullishness is accompanied by higher levels of cash on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. It takes fresh powder i.e. new money to push prices higher. So a couple minutes ago, you and I were talking about the selling that we saw in September. Money's on the sidelines. Interest rates are near still all-time lows. What are people going to do with the money? Honestly, what are you going to do with the money? Where is it going to go? We're playing a game <laughs> of chicken, listeners, in my opinion. Yep. Okay? And the, and, the, and the game of chicken is this. Who is going to buy next? And when the rally starts, they're going to try to catch it. And that's a dangerous game of musical chairs that I don't want to be involved with. Yeah. That's my two cents. And this sentiment survey, in my opinion, kind of backs that up. Yeah, I think that's a great, you know, a great way to, to end this section because it it summarizes a lot of what we've talked about. It does. Where you have all these risks, you have all these, you know, this angst in, in the news and in the markets and the markets coming down and you have these the, the pessimism from you know, that, that you're referencing here. And it's, you know, we have, we haven't even heard from the companies yet. No, from, from we haven't heard about it. No. So it seems a bit self first. It seems just a bit premature for the markets to be hitting the panic button. Right. Um, this could so, yeah. be an earnings season, Nick, where you might not buy the rumor and sell the news, meaning you might not see stocks rally into earnings, but you might have some major reactions exactly. after the earnings release the next yeah. day. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Nick, well, let's uh, let's transition for our listeners to the financial planning topic of the week. Um, I selected this topic because of your recommendation. So listeners, uh, Nick recommended that we cover the topic of required minimum distributions. And this will take me about roughly eh, two and a half, three minutes to kind of go over. It's not mm -hmm. going to be a long topic today. Good. But um, as we get near the end of the year, uh, a lot of uh, clients who are required to take a withdrawal from their retirement account, this tends to be a hotter topic. So 
let's explain what is an RMD. Okay, so I'll start off. A RMD, or Required Minimum Distribution Listeners, is an IRS-mandated amount of money that you must withdraw from a traditional IRA or an employer-sponsored retirement account each year. It's important to understand when you need to take an RMD, how to avoid costly penalties for late distributions, and maximize your withdrawal strategy. So Nick, age requirement. The IRS requires you to start taking these withdrawals, these RMDs, at age 72, okay? Mm -hmm. Next topic, RMD amounts. If you are the original account owner, your RMD is calculated by dividing the prior year-end account balance by a life expectancy factor in the IRS uniform lifetime table. In essence, in plain English, the government provides a mortality table based upon your gender and date of birth and says how long you're gonna live based upon the mortality table, mm -hmm. and that's divided by your prior year-end account value, mm -hmm. okay? Now, there's some other things. If, However, if you're married and your spouse is the only primary beneficiary and is more than 10 years younger than you, your RMD is calculated by using a different uh, mortality table. This one's called the IRS Joint Life Expectancy Table. And if your spouse is no more 10 years younger, your RMD is calculated using the IRS uniform lifetime table. So not to get too much in the weeds, whoever your custodian is, whoever holds your retirement account, they're going to know based upon your date of birth, your gender, the primary beneficiaries um, uh, relationship, uh, gender and date of birth, they're mm -hmm. going to know what table to use and they'll be able to tell you how much you got to take at a minimum. Yep. Makes sense? Absolutely. Next, let's talk about account types. What does this cover, Nick? So RMDs must be taken out of tax-deferred retirement accounts. That includes traditional IRAs, rollover IRAs, simple IRAs, SEP IRAs, most 401k and 403b plans. There are no RMDs for Roth IRAs, Nick, unless they're inherited. Okay. What are the deadlines? April 1st. Deadline for your first RMD in the year after you turn 72. You do not have to take the RMD from your workplace plan until you terminate or retire. December 31, the deadline for each following RMD. Please note, Nick, that if you delay your first RMD until April, you have to take two RMDs your first year. The first will have to be taken by April 1st for the year you turn 72. And the second has to be done by the December 31st for the second year or the year that you're in essence 73. Let's talk about penalties. Don't miss your RMD deadline because regardless of your account type, the IRS penalty is very severe, Nick. 50% mm -hmm. of the amount not taken. Now I have a little trick. Uh, I'm not a CPA, I'm not a lawyer. But I do know that if there was an extenuating circumstance that made you miss it, you can write a letter to the IRS, mm -hmm. and um, I've heard they're very understanding. Mm -hmm. I, I think sometimes the IRS gets a bum rap, because every time I've had a client that had an issue and they write a letter, they, they seem to be pretty good to work with. So I don't, I think... They're the tax man, yeah. I know, I think they just... <laughs> of course I think, they're going to get a bad I rap. I think they get a bad rap. I mean, in the realm of understanding when legit situations come sure. up. So mm -hmm. I want to... I give them a little bit of credit there. Okay. So I do want to emphasize though, that 
the penalties on that. That's why we're bringing this up now. That's why it's a good topic because we're getting closer to that deadline. Exactly. You know, we've, we've, you know, had some talk in the office about, you know, yeah, this is a hot topic right now. I love this. Um, last thing I have is taxes. Um, the IRS taxes these withdrawals as ordinary income. This is a biggie, Nick. This means that withdrawals will count towards your totable, total taxable income for the year. And they will be taxed at your applicable individual federal income tax rate and also could be subject to state and local taxes. If you made after-tax contributions to your IRA, such as a traditional IRA, Mm -hmm. you must calculate your RMD based upon the total balance. However, your taxable income may be reduced proportionally for those after-tax contributions. I won't get that too much in the weeds on this on that one. Keep in mind that this income increase uh, may push you into a higher tax bracket and may impact the taxes you pay for Social Security and Medicare. I have had clients that have reached out and as they've gotten older and their required minimum distributions have gotten higher, mm-hmm. it has affected their uh, Medicare co-pays because yep. there is a, a component of that. Mm-hmm. And I remember several, several podcasts to go over the summer. I know Aaron was on once and he talked about that. Yeah. But um, before I transition from RMDs, anything else you want to add, Nick? No, I think that's a, that's a timely topic. I'm, I'm glad you... Uh... You talked us through that. Yeah. yeah. And I'll just throw it out there. You know, we have uh, our in-house pair planner, Aaron Kramer, that if mm-hmm. any of the listeners want to uh, pick his brain, he's an RMD uh, expert. And, uh, you know, you he can sure reach is. out to reach out to Aaron and he can definitely help you out with that. Yeah. Um, so as we sign off, uh, before I do the official sign off, Nick, anything else you want to share with listeners? I think uh, I think we're, we're good. I think we've covered it pretty well. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. It has. I enjoyed having you as a guest this week. It's been a lot of fun preparing, doing the actual podcast. Oh, yeah. I love it. So, listeners, thank you for listening to the 117th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast. Nick and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your weekend and enjoy the beginning of the fourth quarter. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, 
including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.